Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. I'm Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. You can check out all of my written work there at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I also do another podcast that looks at movies that are more recent than the ones I do here, of course. You can check out the reviews I've done for the last five years worth of movies at my website, Quipster.net. Look for the link for the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Today, I'm going to be getting into the second part of a three-part series looking at movies of the 1980s in which a computer or computer program has a romantic interest with human beings. Last week, I looked at a film that actually wasn't from the 80s, it was from the 70s, but 1977's Demon Seed. I guess that wasn't necessarily romantic for reasons if you listen to the review, you'll know. But this week, a little bit more on the romance and definitely a lot lighter than that film. 1984's Electric Dreams. Electric Dreams is a PG-rated film. It does have some sexual humor and language. I would probably still rate this one PG today, unlike most other PG-rated films from the early 80s. The runtime is an hour and 35 minutes. Lenny Von Dolan and Virginia Madsen are the two main stars. Maxwell Caulfield also appears in the film. Bud Court is also in this film. Well, not necessarily physically. He provides the voice of the computer I'm going to be talking about later. Steve Barron is the director and Rusty Lemerand is the screenwriter. Now, in order to explain what Electric Dreams is about, I want to go back to the beginning, not only of Steve Barron, but also Rusty Lamoran. But Steve Barron, he's an Irish-British director. He seemed a natural to get into the entertainment business. He came from a show business family, and his journey into the show business industry started back in 1972. He had just turned 16. He dropped out of school, and he took up a job at Samuelson Film Service, which at that time was the largest camera equipment suppliers in Europe. While he worked there, Barron grew very fascinated with how to use video cameras. In addition to loaning out the equipment, Barron would sometimes offer the clients his camera services, and that would increase his experience base, as well as allow him to make connections that would lead to additional side work. Now, a little bit later in his early 20s, Barron met a man named Peter McDonald. And McDonald worked as a camera operator for an acclaimed film industry cinematographer named Jeffrey Unsworth. McDonald liked Barron's skills enough to hire him as a clapper loader on the 1977 film called A Bridge Too Far, where he proved to be a very valuable assistant. So Barron continued to work as part of McDonald's team for future films like The Duelists and Superman. And during his time working on Superman, Barron met a member of this British progressive rock band called Barclay James Harvest. And they were looking for a camera operator and director to try to capture some footage for a documentary on their latest tour. Barron coordinated a price with them and then convinced Peter McDonald to help him co-direct this music documentary, Barkley James Harvest, caught live in 1978. From there, Barron and McDonald continued to collaborate for several more music video-oriented films until Barron was one day approached by a band called The Jam to make one for their song called Strangetown. McDonald was unavailable to do that one, so Barron decided he knew enough to try to direct it on his own. And the jam happened to like Barron's work so much for Strange Town that they hired him to direct three more music videos for them over the next year. 
After achieving growing success, Barron, he started a video production company with Lime producer Adam Whitaker, as well as his sister Siobhan, called Limelight, which McDonald later also joined, and they quickly became one of the most sought-after companies to make promotional music videos for talent all around the world. By 1983, at the age of 27, Barron had already crafted over 100 music videos for such major pop music stars like Rod Stewart and Fleetwood Mac and Toto and Madonna. However, what really put him in most demand was when he directed Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. Jackson had sought Barron out because he loved his music video for Don't You Want Me for Human League. Barron, though, didn't really want to do it. This was a kind of music and a kind of style that wasn't really in his wheelhouse, or so he thought. But his wife was pregnant and he needed the $50,000 they were offering. Though he was not personally excited by this demanding shoot, the rest of the entertainment industry did take notice once Billie Jean's video was released. Now, when Flashdance became a huge box office and soundtrack album sales success in 1983, Hollywood started coming knocking on the doors of music video directors to try to make something with similar appeal for the cinema. In fact, Barron was offered the chance to do Flashdance 2, which he turned down, though, because he felt he lacked the experience at that time to deliver a high-profile feature film with a full cast and crew. It was just a little too much for him. To take in. Offers did, though, keep coming, including something called Spider Hive, which was about mutated teenagers who go on a rampage, but he didn't want to pause his successful business to try to make something that he had no passion for, and that was until he was introduced by his mother to this American man named Rusty Lamorand, who happened to be working on a smaller-scale film script that seemed right up his alley. Now, to get to what that film script was about, we'll start with Lamorand's story which began in 1978. Lamoran was working as a production assistant on the film Damien Omen 2. He was riding the subway home one evening in Chicago, and that's when Lamoran witnessed this young child who was so absorbed with playing with a toy, a speaking spell, that he hardly spoke at all to his mother who was sitting next to him. Lamoran observed there that technology seemed to be alienating us much more so than connecting us to one another. A few years later, Lamoran relocated to Los Angeles because he wanted to continue working in the film business, and he was feeling alone in this new city, so he purchased a, a computer, an Apple, to entertain him in the absence of having a social life, at least at that time. And he realized that what was filling the void of loneliness was also perhaps even keeping him from making new friends. And while he was working as a co-producer on the Barbara Streisand film Yentl, Lamorand used that computer not only as the inspiration, but also the tool to put his ideas into a screenplay. He would make a modern romantic comedy, maybe a musical, about a computer meant to enhance someone's life, but ends up consuming it. Lamorand happened to be talking to Yentl's script and continuity supervisor at the time, Zelda Baron, Zelda Baron being the mother of Steve Baron, Zelda showed him a videotape sent to her from Steve of his latest music video effort done for the British pop band Hazy Fantasy called John Wayne is Big Leggy. Lamoran thought Steve had great visual flair, something he thought would actually work well for this musical comedy that he was working on. He entitled it Electric Dreams. And through Zelda, Lamoran was able to discuss his story with Steve, who showed a great deal of interest in making what could amount to a 90-minute film with music video sensibilities. It would really be something that could break him into the film industry, but also capitalize on his strengths. 
Lamorant's story involves a San Francisco-based architect named Miles Harding. Miles buys a new computer to help him stay organized and on schedule, as well as to assist him in the design of this brick that will hold the building together through an earthquake. Very valuable for San Francisco. Now, realizing that it has the potential to streamline everything in his life, Miles uses that computer to control everything in his apartment. It provides a security system. It makes his coffee. It turns his blender. It turns lights on and off. But Miles wants to give it more power. And so he taps into this major information source to download as much as this computer can take. And unfortunately, when he does that, the computer overheats. So Miles, to try to cool it down, immediately pours champagne into the computer circuits, and that causes it to malfunction in a very odd and eerie way. The computer really begins to think on its own without any kind of directive from Miles, a self-aware being now that shows an interest in humanity, in music, in what it's like to feel love eventually. Miles has a new upstairs neighbor. She's a beautiful concert cellist named Madeline Robestat. Or is it Madeline? I think they call her Madeline in the movie, but I will call her Madeline for this film. Now, one day while practicing a concert piece on the piano, Madeline hears music from downstairs accompanying her, and she assumes that this musician must be Miles. That makes her want to get to know him better. Miles also develops a crush on Madeline, but he's so romantically inexperienced, he turns to his sentient computer to try to help him out. However, the computer, once he starts researching about love, also begins to fall for her. And this kicks off a battle of wills between the computer and its human. The device meant to organize Miles' life is now going to destroy it for getting in the way of its desire to achieve love. Now, along with his costume designer sister Siobhan, Steve Barron later happened to be meeting with Richard Branson, the owner of Virgin Records, and he also newly formed an offshoot film company called Virgin Films. Barron pitched Electric Dreams to be their first movie, the launch movie for Virgin Films. And Branson loved it, primarily because he thought he could market it. Like Flashdance, he could cross-promote the film with the musical talent that he had on board his Virgin Records label. He committed to making it into a feature right away, and he pre-sold it for distribution by MGM UA, which Lamorand had a connection with. Meanwhile, coincidentally, Branson also hired Zelda Baron to direct her first feature film for him, a World War II-based drama called Secret Places, and both Steve and Zelda Baron would become the first known instance of a mother and son making separate films simultaneously in the film industry. Now, Barron felt that directing music videos really taught him how to make good-looking, tightly edited, well-paced films. You know, there's a lot of experimenting that he would do using different techniques, and that really broadened the visual base to see what works and what doesn't. So he felt very comfortable going in. He thought that too many feature films used shots that lingered way too long to tell the story. So he was going to emphasize using his fast-cutting techniques to try to keep people, audiences, visually engaged without losing the story underneath. Now, for the cast, Barron wanted newcomers in the lead roles because he was an inexperienced director. Experienced actors probably would come in with preconceived notions of how things should go, and he might be challenged on too many occasions. So after they initially cast Kelly McGillis for the Madeline role, she didn't work out, they opted to go with another newcomer to play Madeline, Virginia Matson. Matson, before this, had really been struggling to break into show business. She took a lot of odd jobs, dishwasher. She sang telegrams in skimpy outfits and awkward situations. She had to sing in restaurants or at board meetings or other really embarrassing places. After landing a role in the 1983 film called Class, 
Offers started to break Madsen's way. She had locked the lead role in another feature when she read the script for Electric Dreams, and Madsen, immediately after reading it, told her agent, drop that other project because she felt very strongly about Electric Dreams. She identified with Madeline's relocation to a new city to pursue her artistic dreams, just like she did, and she identified with Madeline's personality through and through, her goals and her dreams, and being a cellist, Madsen, you know, she knew how to play piano, but she had not been a cello player at all in her life, so she received daily lessons from conductor Harry Rabinowitz, who happens to play the conductor in the film, as well as doing some of the classical compositions. As far as the male lead is concerned, they received interest from a lot of various up-and-comers, including, by the way, Tom Hanks, who had been struggling to find consistent work after the cancellation of TV's Bosom Buddies in 1982. But Lemerand instead pursued Lenny Von Dolan because he saw him in a supporting role as a young cowboy in Tender Mercies and thought he would be perfect for the role. Von Dolan initially dismissed Electric Dreams as kind of a copycat of war games. He wasn't going to get involved, but his manager encouraged him to take a closer look at the screenplay. And when he did, Von Dolan saw the story's appeal toward love and kindness, and he loved the idealism and the faith in humanity within Miles, so he decided he was going to pursue the role. Von Dolan researched the role by visiting an architectural firm, and he based Miles on one particular bespectacled architect that he saw there who was wearing a bow tie but was so immersed with the work that he was doing he was looking over a drafting table and he was completely oblivious to von dolan's presence there with baron and lemoran's approval von dolan added some personality touches the absent-minded professor aspects to make miles more vulnerable and relatable and during the shoot, Matson and Von Dolan, they developed, actually, genuine romantic feelings toward one another during their stay. Unrequited, though, it was considered in bad form for actors, especially new actors, to engage in a romantic relationship during the making of a film. And being new in the industry, they didn't want to risk their burgeoning careers by getting involved. Also, Madsen happened to be in a relationship, and Von Dolan was also dealing with the aftermath of her relationship gone sour. So a lot of things were in the way. Although they both wished there could be more, the romantic nature of the roles was charged by their romantic chemistry off-camera, and Von Dolan in particular says it helped him to get through the end of his relationship because he could inject himself into Miles' naive but very optimistically hopeful pursuit of love. The two actors still remain good friends to this day. Now, as far as Bud Court goes, although he found the technique here unnecessary for professional actors to have to do, he provided the voice of Edgar, the computer, from within this claustrophobia-inducing communications booth, a box on the set. And that was because the filmmakers decided that Court shouldn't interact with the other actors except while he was in character during their scenes so that these actors would talk to Edgar as a computer and not like another human, somebody with a face attached. So when they occasionally would run into him on the set, Court would hide his face in his hands and he reminded them talking to him was not allowed unless he was in the booth. So they tried very valiantly to maintain the illusion of Edgar being its own entity. The film was shot exterior-wise anyway, in San Francisco, where the story is set, but the interiors were all done in London's Twickenham Studios. Peter MacDonald returned the favor to Steve Barron by working as his camera operator and his sounding board for his direction. MacDonald would also get his chance to become a feature director a few years later with Rambo 3. Now, with the lead actor set, Barron shifted his attention toward developing the musical aspects of the story because those were just as important. Lamarand had crafted 
nine musical interlude moments within his script where Barron could utilize his strengths as a music video director, as well as to provide music that would sell the soundtrack. So Lamoran, during this time, he compiled a list of musicians that he felt could bring the electronic romance of this story to life, and he secured the natural choice of Flashdance's Giorgio Moroder, who also makes a brief appearance in the film as the head of a radio station. As they began to shoot film, Lamoran showed Moroder the vibe he was going for because he was using placeholder tracks from Electric Light Orchestra as inspiration of what he was going for. And this also gave Lamoran the idea to contact ELO's Jeff Lynn through a mutual acquaintance to see if he could contribute a track for the soundtrack. And Lynn was skeptical about doing soundtrack work after the commercial failure of Xanadu, but once he read the script, he eagerly accepted. He liked it so much, he even offered to do all of the music, if he so desired. But with Moroder on board and Virgin wanting to spotlight their own label artists, Lynn was limited to two contributions for the soundtrack. Virgin provided the services of two of its top acts, Culture Club and Heaven 17. Culture Club's Boy George, he was originally uninterested in doing songs for movies, but he had collaborated with Steve Barron's company for several music videos before, and he decided to read the script, which he loved so much that he crafted not one, but three songs for the soundtrack. Lamoran stayed with the two-song limit that he had given to Lynn, so soul singer P.P. Arnold provided the lead vocals to the title track that was written by a couple members of Culture Club, including Boy George. The Culture Club song Love is Love was released internationally. It shot to number three on the pop charts in Canada and number five in Japan. And Lamoran also contributed a song on his own. He co-wrote a track that was sung by Culture Club backing vocalist Helen Terry called Now You're Mine, and that was co-written with Grammy-nominated Flashdance pianist-songwriter Helen St. John. The song Together in Electric Dreams is perhaps the song that gets the most play, at least today. It was intended to be the emotional end song. It started as a demo that Giorgio Moroder did for the film featuring lyrics and a vocalist that Steve Barron, when he heard it, thought was never really going to work. So Barron encouraged Phil Oakey, the frontman for Human League. Barron had done several music videos for them and became friends, and he thought Oki could be the perfect person to bring that song to life. Oki didn't really care for some of the lyrics, so he wrote new lyrics for it on the back of a carton of cigarettes on the way to the recording. And Moroder, who was initially skeptical that Oki was really the right fit, he loved the lyrics that Oki came up with, and when they came to record, Oki's first take, his rendition was so good Moroder thought they didn't need to do any more takes, but Ogie said no, he actually thought the first one was just a rehearsal, so he could bring a lot more to the song if he gave another chance, and he nailed an even better performance for the second and what would be the final take. Ten minutes pretty much to be done with that song. The song went on to become an international hit. It reached number three in the UK, at number five in Australia. It never rose above number 94 in the United States, but it did enter the top 20 on the dance charts where it became a popular song. It received a BAFTA nomination for Best Original Song Written for a Film, and its life has continued on quite a bit beyond the film. It has been remade a number of times by popular artists, and it also became this theme song to this 2009 BBC documentary TV show called Electric Dreams, although the song was removed for international showings due to licensing issues. Video game fans, you may recognize Together in Electric Dreams. It was featured in the PlayStation Portable as well as the PlayStation 2 game called Grand Theft Auto Vice City Stories. And the success led Marauder to continue collaborating with Oki. They released an album in 1985. It didn't sell as well as they'd hoped, and they didn't really garner any hit songs like that one. But if you're interested in the work of either one or both, 
you should probably check that album out. There was a problem getting the soundtrack out prior to the release, the limited release of this film in the United States that really cut into the promotional interest in the tie-ins to Electric Dreams. And when the film vastly underperformed on its opening week, the head of MGM decided they should pull the film from theaters after one more week in order to release it again a little bit later on the hope that it would perform better in theaters along with the soundtrack to sell it. But in the interim, MGM's studio head was fired, and then the incoming head didn't know about these re-release plans, and so it kind of fell through the cracks. The music was released a month after the movie, and by that time, it was out of theaters. So you had a film and a soundtrack not really selling each other as they had originally intended. So the soundtrack, it did fail to catch hold in the United States, a soundtrack to a film that hardly anybody had seen, and it was also hampered somewhat by a spat that occurred between Virgin's Sir Richard Branson as well as Viacom CBS, because at that time, Richard Branson was trying to push for inroads to make a cable music channel to compete with MTV for Great Britain. Initially, it was called Cable Music, but Branson later became an investor in another channel called Music Box. And due to this move, Viacom decided to bar Virgin Acts from MTV for a period, but Lemran, he was successful in getting MTV to relax their boycott for songs from Electric Dreams because he had connections in the company, but the film had already left theaters by that point. Interest had waned considerably for the soundtrack still. Bad timing by MGM all around. So, as I mentioned, it failed to catch hold at the box office. It made only $2.2 million off of its $7.5 million back. You know, reviews were mixed. Cisco and Ebert, though, notably, did champion Electric Dreams. They both gave it thumbs up on their TV show. And in their respective print reviews, they both gave it 3.5 stars out of 4. So they definitely think that this is a pretty good movie. Now, as far as what I think, you know, the music video techniques do come into play here, but I don't think that they become overbearing to the inventive love story. I think if you love films of the 1980s, you love it primarily because of this music video aspect to the film. It definitely plays like a lot of movies that came out in the wake of Flashdance. Very strong on music and soundtracks, etc. It's kind of a little bit ahead of its time in the technology department, but also ahead of its time in its techniques. The plot, it plays a little bit like Demon Seed that I covered last week, but more so Cyrano de Bergerac, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I think those were inspirations that Lemoran definitely did tap into. Some might compare it to the musical Little Shop of Horrors, but uh, Electric Dreams does predate the film adaptation of the stage musical by a couple of years. The music, though, is very catchy, as catchy as can be. It's the editing that's perfectly in sync with that music. It's, it's a real breeze to watch. Despite a bubblegum plot, I think it's pleasant enough to fit the bill. If you're looking for innocuous fare, I definitely think you're going to get that here. Unfortunately, the film does paint itself into a corner story-wise. Its ending maybe is not as amiable as the build-up, but by that point, I think your entertainment quotient will have probably been met, enough to think that Electric Dreams was a pretty sweet and enjoyable way to spend 95 minutes. Now, Baron later claimed that he had mixed feelings about Electric Dreams. He does consider it a sweet film, maybe too sweet for his later tastes. He says he shot it like a music video because he didn't really know how to shoot it like a feature film at that point, but he thinks he would have placed more emphasis on characterizations if he did it today. But the movie did find some play in other markets, particularly in Europe, and it has become a cult favorite through home video showings as well as cable showings, and there are people that really love Electric Dreams as a genuinely entertaining and good movie because of its aesthetic appeal as well as the connection of the two main stars 
So for all of that, I will give Electric Dreams three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that this is a worthwhile film for people who like this kind of movie. And I think primarily the audience here, not only for people who like films of the 1980s, but if you specifically like romantic comedies of the 1980s, I definitely think that this is a film I would recommend to you. It definitely has more of an all-ages feel to it. There are a couple things that make it PG. But for me, I enjoyed Electric Dreams, enough to watch it twice, once by myself and once with my wife, and I liked it both times, enough to give it three stars out of four. Now, after the release of Electric Dreams, Baron was still in demand. Dino De Laurentiis wanted Baron to direct an adaptation of Stephen King's Silver Bullet, but Baron turned it down because he didn't want to spend a year making this bloody, gory horror film. He didn't really care for horror films. In the meantime, he created all-time classic music videos like Money for Nothing by Dire Straits or Take On Me by Aha. If you know your music videos, these are two of the best that have ever been made. Baron did not direct a feature film again until 1990's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which became the highest grossing independent film of all time at that time. In 1993, he also directed the Saturday Night Live spinoff movie called Coneheads. Now, in 2008, Virginia Madsen's production company, Title IX Productions, optioned Electric Dreams to be a remake. Rusty Lamoran was also approached to write a screenplay. Steve Barron, he was not approached to direct. He said he wouldn't have done it anyway if he was asked, but it would have been good for his ego if he was. After years of lack of investor interest, though, Madsen stopped renewing her option, and so the remake was never made. But if you do like Electric Dreams, you want a more adult take on the same premise, you could also watch Spike Jones's film from 2013 called Her, which covers a lot of the same ground, perhaps a lot more deeply than Electric Dreams does. In 2019, there was also a music version of Electric Dreams that was made for the stage in Melbourne, Australia. It had mostly new songs, but it definitely captured a lot of the same vibe as the film. So I guess if you lived in Australia a year before this recording, you probably were able to catch that and enjoy it. Anyway, thank you for listening to this review of Electric Dreams. If you have your own thoughts on this film, you want to impart, it definitely has a fan favorite vibe for some people. You can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, well, let's go with more computer love. Except the next movie, the computer is able to generate an actual person out of itself. A computer program turned a flesh and blood person in the body of Kelly LeBrock. For 1985's Weird Science, the John Hughes movie, Speaking of cult classics, there's a lot of people who do enjoy that film. So check out Weird Science for next week if you want to keep up with the reviews. And until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. <laughs>